0: today is the call to surrender. When I was about 11 years old, I was putting my little sister to bed one night. She was four years old. And as was her custom, all of us were taught to say to either sing or say those lovely words of the children's prayer, Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me bless thy little child tonight through the darkness, bless thy little lamb tonight, through the darkness be thou near me, keep me safe till morning light. And then we usually went on to bless mommy and daddy and Phil and Dave and Betty, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when Ginny got down to her brother Tom, she went through the list, and Tommy was a year younger than Jenny, He was three, she was four. And she said, and Lord... Please make Tommy always say, "Yes, Jenny, you can have it." <laughs> now, I'm sure that she had not analyzed exactly what she was requiring of that child, but it is a perfect illustration of asking a complete reversal of one's natural sense of values. Our natural sense of values is me first, my thing, it's my life, my will be done. And of course, what Ginny wanted was her way. Whatever the toy happened to be, you know perfectly well that if any two children are playing together and one wants a certain toy, then they both want the certain toy. If nobody else were there, neither one of them would want the toy but it's because the other one has it that there's the squabble. But she was asking a complete reversal of Tommy's natural sense of values. And I believe that that is exactly what God is asking of you and me, a complete reversal of our natural sense of values. He is offering to us a supernatural life, We are not perfect, we are sinners, we are fallible, we do fail, we are miserable offenders, as an ancient prayer says. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. And this new life that Jesus offers to you and me is revolutionary, radical. And when you really seriously contemplate the terms which Jesus laid down so unequivocally, it's outrageous. It outrages our natural sense of values. Does he want all of me? Do I have to surrender everything? I grew up singing... The old gospel songs that nobody knows anymore, but one of them was All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give, I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. And I heard Joe Bailey one time say that he heard one of his sons muttering under his breath, Everything except my baby bunny. (laughs) And most of us, if we're honest, would be reserving some. Corner for ourselves. What Jesus is asking for is a free delivery of all of our rights. All of our rights. And just saying, Here I am, Lord, do anything you want with me. That's what surrender means. Now we are not about to surrender ourselves to anyone that we don't trust. Certainly when a bride comes down the aisle, she is about to surrender her life to somebody that she loves and trusts and probably thinks is a prize package. She wouldn't be marrying him if she didn't think he was a prize package, and they invariably turn out to be surprise packages. (laughs) But what is marriage other than surrender? Even the man is surrendering a whole lot of rights. He's surrendering his privacy, he's surrendering the right to do his own thing without ever considering anybody else. And a wife is surrendering her name, her virginity, her privacy, her family, her geography, perhaps, and the right to make unilateral decisions. Jesus asks us to surrender to him, but we will not do this unless we trust him. Now, first of all, for those of you who take notes, I'm going to try to make it easy for you. Point number one under this heading, The Call to Surrender, is the recognition of who God is, recognition of who it is who is calling us to this radical reversal of our sense of values. In in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, it says, I, the Lord, have called thee. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. I created thee, formed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. He is our creator. We might say he's the manufacturer, and he's given us the owner's manual, a set of instructions by which life will work a whole lot better. If you buy a car or an appliance of any kind and you can't make the crazy thing work after fiddling with it in every, every way you can think of and getting your husband to fiddle with it, then when all else fails, what do you do? Read the directions. And that's usually the way we treat God, isn't it? We try our own way for a very long time, and it's not until we're absolutely helpless and have tried everything and nothing is working that we read the directions. But if we once got it through our heads who this is that is calling us, we wouldn't have nearly such a hard time surrendering. He is our creator, our redeemer, lover of our souls, and ruler of all. We read in Psalm 147 that he calls the stars by name and leads them out. Should have put a marker in here. Psalm 147, three and four, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. And I love those two verses right together. It is the same one who heals the brokenhearted, and I dare say there might be one or two here tonight who are brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds. This is a very personal, very compassionate, very sympathetic, very intimate God. But let's never forget, he determines the numbers, the number of the stars, and calls them each by name. Now, I don't know whether it was God who named the star Antares, but there is a star known by that name. Just very recently, I learned a few facts about that star. Now, I am anything but an astronomer, but I'm fascinated by astronomy, and I do like to pick up bits and pieces that I can comprehend. And this is one that blew my mind. I don't claim to have comprehended it, but these facts, now just get a load of this, there is a star out there called Antares that is what astronomers call a supergiant. And Antares is of a stupendous size that I'm sure none of us can really comprehend. It's It belongs in the Uh, constellation of Scorpio it can be seen low on the summer horizon it's sort of a pinkish star and it really is not very spectacular to look at you wouldn't know how tremendous it is it's called a supergiant and it is 390 times the size of the sun which is one and a quarter million times the size of the earth now did you get all that this star is 390 times the size of the sun, and the sun is, is it one and a quarter million times the size of the earth. Now, if you took Antares and imagine it as a hollow rubber ball and you slice the rubber ball in half, you could put inside that star Venus, Mercury, Mars, the earth, and the sun, and those planets... Venus, Mercury, Mars, and Earth could continue their orbits around the sun inside that ball without touching the edge. Who thought up that star? It says in marvelous understatement in in Genesis 1, speaking of all the creative activity of God, and he made the stars. Just as if you know, you decided to make biscuits for supper. <laughs> I mean, you'd done everything else, and then you just thought, well, I'll do one more little thing that'll please my husband. I'll just whip up a few biscuits. And he made the stars, only one of which is Antares. Now, there is another star out there, and I'm not going to get into that, because by the time I've talked about one and a quarter million times the size of the Earth and and 390 times the size of the Sun, and all those planets going around in their orbits inside that ball, I give up on trying to comprehend it, but there is another star out there. I remind you that Antares is 390 times the size of the Sun. There's another star out there that's 2,700 times the size of the Sun, We think of the sun as pretty big, don't we? And the man who taught me these things, just somebody on a tape, I don't know who he is, his name is Boyd Nicholson, and I learned this tape and I've been reading, listening to it over and over again. He has a wonderful Scottish accent, which I can't imitate, but he said, these are only pebbles on the shores of the great ocean of space and time where light swims through a billion years, from island universe to island universe, and of all the stellar all that stellar magnitude, the Bible says, in beautiful understatement, he made the stars also. They are the work of his fingers, this man says. This is the one whom we know intimately who sits on the throne of the universe and in whose hand is the disposition of all things, no man will rob him of his prerogative in the ultimate outcome of the universe. He's the one that heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Now, if he can keep, all of those incredible galaxies out there, and there are perhaps 200 million galaxies, each of which contain millions and billions of stars, if he can keep all of that running in perfect harmony, absolute precision, do you think perhaps, if you surrendered everything to to him, that he might possibly manage it better than you can by yourself? Would you grant that possibility? He calls you and me to surrender. He just says, give me your life if you want to. You don't have to. He's not going to invade your life. But he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I want the kingdom of God to come on earth, and I want to contribute to the coming of that kingdom And I want his will to be done, not only on earth, not only in our government, not only in Bosnia, Herzegovina, not only in Somalia and in Russia, but also here in Hudson, Florida, in Magnolia, Massachusetts, where we live, in my home, in my study, in my heart. That's what I want. In Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I'm sorry, that was verse 6, not 8, 9. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. And Terry's, for one thing, is subject Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There is nothing that is not subject to Christ. Accept us. And he asks us to subject ourselves to him, but he wants us to do it because we love him. And he has given us a will to choose, and we can choose to defy him. The story is told of Voltaire, the great atheist, who stood in front of an audience and tried to prove that there was no God, and he said, If there is a God, I challenge him right now, I'll give him sixty seconds to strike me dead. And he's, he stood watching his watch, and people fainted in the audience with fear. And the 60 seconds were up, and he said, There you have it. There is no God. But someone commented, Voltaire did not prove that there wasn't any God, he only proved that there is a merciful God. He's my Savior. He wants to be my Lord. He is my Lord. But I have to ask him. So I ask you tonight, first of all, to stop and look and think of who this is who asks you to surrender, calls you to surrender. And the second thing, this is point two, he asks for a total offering. a total offering of ourselves. Now this idea is not going to fit into any of the current patterns of popular thought. It is not going to fit into modern psychology. It's not going to fit into the self-help programs or the feel-good notions. Not at all. An utter, total, unreserved, irrevocable surrender. Now, there's a little story tucked into the Old Testament that probably not too many of you know by heart, which illustrates a total voluntary surrender. You remember when David the king had been approached by a prophet named Gad, who, by the word of the Lord, came to tell David that he was to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded, through Gad. And those of you that like scripture references, this is 2 Samuel 24, beginning with verse 18. David went up, as the Lord had commanded, and when Araunah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Araunah said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Araunah gives all this to the king. Now all David was asking for was to buy the threshing floor. Well, the threshing floor was Arauna's means of livelihood, wasn't it? Not to mention the oxen and the threshing sledges and the yokes. And just in an access of total surrender, he just said, here, take the whole works, everything, threshing floor, oxen, threshing sledges, and ox yokes for the wood. But the king replied to Araunat, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. God is asking for a voluntary, willed choice to give him everything, all the rights. He says... If you want to be my disciple, you must, first of all, give up your right to yourself. And once we've given up our right to ourselves, we've given up everything, haven't we? The right to own anything. I am his property. I am not my own. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you are not your own, you're bought with a price. So God is asking you and me to let go to relinquish, to offer up, to hand over forever all that we are, all that we have, all that we do, and all that we suffer. Now, just a few weeks ago, I had two letters that they that came in the same mail, two letters from radio listeners, very, very different. Now, they were not different They weren't so very different in the problem in each life. We all have our problems, and it's not the problem that is ever going to make a saint out of any of us. A disaster has never created a saint. It is our response that's going to make the difference in our spiritual lives. And the response of these two women was very, very different. One woman had written to tell me how she she had had a job which was voluntary. She had volunteered to do the job and she had done the job for quite some time and then someone else was paid to do the same job. And she was very bitter and resentful. I don't even know whether that other person knew that this job had been a volunteer job before, but probably her bitterness and resent, resentment were not necessarily rational very often. They're not very rational, are they? Maybe she was mostly bitter and resentful against the people who had decided to pay this other person and had never paid her, even though she had volunteered. So I don't think they were doing her any wrong. Again, she was not being very rational, but you can imagine the possibility of feeling that maybe somebody owed, owed you something after all. And so she wrote to ask me what I thought she should do. Should should she go and discuss it with them? Should she tell them about your, their feeling, her feelings? or should she just pray? She had never used the word bitterness or jealousy in her letter. She was just trying in every way to describe her feelings so that they didn't sound really bad. Unhappy, yes, but not really wicked. So I wrote back what I hoped and prayed and thought was the truth, and I said, "I, I believe that your real problem is jealousy and bitterness. And you know what you have to do with those. I didn't expect to hear from this woman again, but lo and behold, I got a letter in which she said, thank you for putting your finger on my sin. I decided to surrender my feelings to God, to surrender my right to be paid when I hadn't even asked for pay, to surrender all of my feelings against that person. And she said, thank you for sparing me the humiliation and the anxiety that a discussion with that person would have caused me because I didn't talk to her about it. I just talked to the Lord about it. And she said, he just took it all. And she said, the next time I saw that person, I had no feelings against her whatsoever. The other letter was about 10 pages very beautiful, very small, narrowly spaced handwriting. It takes me a long time to read some of these letters, and uh, this woman was having real problems with another person in her life. I'm not going to go i don't want I don't want to pin this down not only because I don't want you to guess who it is in case it should be somebody that anybody in this audience knows. But the main thing is that I want you to try to put yourself in this person's place, and I think every one of us can put ourselves more or less in the place of either of these women. We've all had personality conflicts at one time or another, and this woman's woman's conflicts were very serious, and she went on page after page after page describing how awful it was and how impossible it was for her to handle it any longer. She had had it up to here, She had to somehow or other get out of this thing. And the difference between the two was the difference between the natural attitude and the spiritual attitude. The first woman accepted what had happened in faith because nothing ever happens to us of which God is not in charge. If he's in charge of Antares and the wheeling of those planets... He's in charge of every single detail of my life. They tell me scientists say that in every single cell, in every single piece of matter on the whole in the whole universe, there is a molecular dance going on. Molecules dancing in a perfect pattern all the time. Now who is it that keeps those molecules running like that? A Dutch scientist told me one time, he said, you know, we could we've discovered a great many things about cells and Adams and all the rest of it. But he said, nobody has ever been able to figure out what it is that holds these things together. And the Bible says in him, everything holds together. It's in Christ. And so this, the first letter, letter number one, she was willing to respond in faith, in trust that God could take care of this. She was willing to keep her mouth shut. And how many of us find that easy? May I see the hands of those of you who find it real easy? You know, most of us women are big, big mouths, aren't we? We talk too much. She kept her mouth shut. She was humble enough, teachable enough, meek enough to receive the hard words that I put in that letter to her. And my letters have to be very short. I can't write ten-page letters. So it was one small piece of stationery. And of course, many people could think I'm just being very blunt and very simplistic and she didn't understand me and had no sympathy and all that. All I can do is tell her what the Bible says. And the Bible says that bitterness and jealousy and resentment have to be put away. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. It doesn't say be worked through. It says be put away and be kind one to another. But the other woman gave me many good common sense reasons which would justify her getting out of that relationship. Common sense would say there isn't any other solution. Just get away. Get out of there. This would be natural human justice. This makes sense. This is human ethics. But, oh dear, I have to read to you what Jesus says about this kind of thing. You have heard that it was said, and this is Matthew five, thirty-eight. Well, I'll start instead with 38, I'll start with 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense, doesn't it? That's natural reasoning. But I tell you, love your enemies... Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of of your Father in heaven. And look at verse 39. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now make sure you understand this is not Elizabeth Elliot talking. This is Jesus. Do not resist an evil person. If, If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. And, you know, we just, we read scriptures like that, and our automatic reaction is, that doesn't apply in my case. But what about this? But what if that? And surely God doesn't mean so-and-so. My question always is, what does he mean? I don't know what he doesn't mean. My question is, what does he mean? And I couldn't help, writing back to this woman and saying, you might be amazed at the transformation that could take place if you took the frightening risk of being obedient to Jesus Christ and starting to love this person. If you loved this person, who rightly is called your enemy, then you wouldn't leave, would you? you wouldn't forsake that person. I leave those two letters with you to ponder. If it fits your case, if the shoe fits, put it on. Please don't come to me and say, yes, but my case is a little bit similar to that, but there's a difference here. And so what do you think I should do? I don't know. There are a whole lot of things I don't know. And that's what I have to tell people very often. I really don't know what you are supposed to do in your situation, but I do know what the Bible says. And I know the one who never breaks his promises. And I have certainly found, and I've lived long enough to realize that every single time that I have obeyed God, no matter what the risk appeared to be, it has led ultimately to joy. And every single time that I have disobeyed God because of fear, because of anger, because of prudence, because of human wisdom, it has made me miserable. You don't know what God will do. You know, C.S. Lewis has some wonderful illustrations of these truths. In his Narnia books, and I hope you young mothers read the Narnia books to your children. They are packed with spiritual lessons. And there's a place in there where Lucy has, had, has seen Aslan face to face. And Aslan tells her that she is to go back and tell the other children that she has seen him. And little Lucy is scared to death because they won't believe her, she says. And it's a very frightening thing for a little girl to have to go and wake people up and tell them that she has seen something that they're sure she couldn't possibly have seen. And Aslan just says to her, you never can know what might happen. You can only know what will happen. This is what you must do. And so Lewis says, Lucy realized... That when a thing is very frightening to do, you must not think about it. You must just do it. You must not ask yourself whether you can do it. You must do it. My friend Barb Tompkins, who has raised several children, and she seems like a very wise mother, often says to her children, when people say they can't, they usually mean they won't. You mothers certainly know that's true, don't you? I can't make my bed. I'm only three years old. (laughs) Well, yes, you can make your bed. You may not be able to make it perfectly when you're three years old, but if you start making it when you're three years old, you'll do better when you're four, and you'll have it perfect by the time you're five. (laughs) And if you say, I want to sweep the kitchen, I can't. Well, they usually mean they won't, and we're just exactly like that, aren't we? Never let your common sense stand in the way of obedience to God. Probably the most difficult decision I ever made in my life, was whether or not I was going to take my little three-year-old daughter and go and live with a bunch of naked so-called savages who had killed her father. This was when, we were, when I was a missionary in Ecuador and my husband Jim was killed and the opportunity to came to go and live with those people. Now, what kind of a mother would take a three-year-old child, a little girl, in to live with the people who had killed her father? I wouldn't have done it without very clear leading from God, but there wasn't any way that I was going to be able to convince anybody else that this was what God was asking me to do. And that's one of the most difficult things. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a star of Bethlehem to point to and say, see, that's, that's God's leading, or if we had a pillar of fire? Because there wouldn't be any argument about that, would there? But God doesn't give us those visible signs anymore. He never gives me any audible voices either. He just gives me, gives me his word, and he gives me all the other ways in which we can discern the will of God. He calls us to a total offering of ourselves. Now, that one woman, in both cases, what God was asking was the offering up of those bad feelings There may have been real wrong in both cases. Apparently, there was. We are not denying the wrong. We are not in denial, as the psychologists are saying, and everybody's in denial nowadays. If I say I did not come from a dysfunctional family, then they say, oh, you're really in trouble. You know, you're in denial. <laughs> because I did have, I guess maybe I'm the only person in the United States that came from a functional family. But then they say, well, you're in denial. That's not what we're talking about. We're not in denial. You accept the fact that this person has wronged you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's real. That hurts. But we're asking God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those is that the measure of forgiveness that you're going to settle for from God? Will you take just that teeny tiny little stingy measure of forgiveness from God for your sins that you're offering to that other person for his or her one or two sins? Think of the tens of thousands of times that we have offended God. It's a total offering. I give him my feelings. The fears of what might happen if I should take God literally and not resist that evil person. Well, letter number one resulted in joy, didn't it? She thanked me. She had peace. She didn't have to go through all the agonies of a confrontation. She just gave it to God. A total offering. Lord, here it is. Take it. Now, there are so many other things that we could talk about under this heading of surrender and offering. All that we are, all that we do. Do you offer your work to God? People often say to me, it must be so wonderful and so fulfilling to be a writer. Oh, I would love to write a book, they say. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to sing the way these four women sang? If I had that gift, then I could really serve the Lord, we say. You know, that's just a slap in the face to God because he gave you the gifts which are exactly tailored to the job he wants you to do. We have these ideas that we're being cheated. All that I do, your housework, do you offer it to God? The work that some of you get paid for, do you offer that to God? Are you serving the Lord Christ It's a total offering. All that I am, all that I do, all that I have, and the most precious things in this world that I have are my husband, my daughter, and my so far seven grandchildren. Am I prepared to say, Lord, do anything with them that you want to do at any cost? And all that I suffer. Now, both these letters that I referred to were from women who were suffering, this real emotional trauma. It's hard, and I know it's hard, and they described it as hard. But Jesus says, come to me, you who are tired and overburdened, and what burden is heavier than resentment and bitterness? I can't think of anything that's a greater load. You that are tired and overburdened, come, I will give you rest but you have to take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I am gentle and humble in heart. And letter number one was an indication that that woman had become gentled and humbler in heart. And letter number two was very clearly lacking in humility and the willingness to take the yoke of Jesus. Number three taking the cross which is offered. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, give up your right to yourself and take up the cross. And to every one of us, my dear sisters, let me assure you, to every one of us the cross is offered. And there is a sense in which the cross is offered to us every day, very often many times in a day, And to me, the cross usually comes in the form of something that cuts across my nature. Anything at all that cuts across my human preferences, my personal choices, what I feel comfortable with, what I would have preferred. It's a very small thing, but it becomes a very big thing, doesn't it? when we determine to dig in our heels and say, I am going to do my own thing. Nobody is going to tell me what to do, and I don't see why I have to be the one that gives in all the time. Why doesn't she give in? You know, what's she doing on the committee anyhow? How did we ever get her on there? What is the cross which is offered to you? Now, Jesus was talking to his disciples as he was on the way up to Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, verses 21 to 25, It says, from that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him exactly the way you and I would have done. I could just imagine him grabbing him by the arm and saying, never, Lord, must that happen to you. Don't go to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? I'm going to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. And he just keeps right on moving toward Jerusalem. Does that make sense? But it was the will of the Father, wasn't it? And Jesus never did anything else but the will of the Father. And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to follow him. We cannot follow him. If we don't start by giving up our right to ourselves and then daily saying yes to God, this little thing which cuts across my preferences, yes, Lord, I'll take it. Yes, Lord, that is my surrender. No to myself and yes to God, taking the cross which is offered. And Jesus, of course, throughout all of his earthly life had been accepting the will of the Father. Daily, hourly, moment by moment, he was accepting the will of the Father. This is the climax of that long obedience in the same direction. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not think as God thinks, but as men think. And that's our downfall, isn't it? We're always taking our cues from the world. We're always trying to be reasonable. We're always trying to be able to explain our actions to other people. And when all 39 of your closest friends say, you got to get out of that, don't even think of staying there any longer, it could be that God, the still small voice, is whispering, stay with me. I'll take care of it. Give it to me. Will you surrender? Will you trust me? Will you love me? Do you really think I could manage this thing a little bit better than you and your friends could manage? You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and this is the heart of the gospel, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself himself Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. Letter number one was a letter from a woman who had lost her life for his sake. And she found it. And she found joy. We're forever trying to save ourselves, protect ourselves, live a no-risk life, When we can see clearly what must be done, let us never ask if we can do it. Let us never waver in fear of the consequences. If a thing must be done, don't ask. Can I? Will I make it? Just do it. It's not rationalization or common sense or safe, but it is a clear call And a glad surrender to a command which is at the same time a promise of grace. And Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord God will help me. Isaiah 50, verse 7. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed call to surrender is, number one, the recognition of who God is. Number two, a total offering. And number three, the taking up of the cross, which is offered, whatever that cross may be. And I dare say that before most of you go to bed tonight, there will be some tiny little way in which you can give up your right to yourself and take up the cross. May God give us eyes to recognize that opportunity